Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. Hi, and welcome to the Defender Podcast Bible Study. It's Monday, July 18th, 2022, and this is Mark Sly. I have the joy of serving as Lifeline's Vice President of International Ministries, and today we are continuing our study of the book of Genesis, specifically chapter 11, beginning in verse 10, all the way to chapter 12 and verse 20. Now, before we begin reading this passage, I just want to point out that at the outset, we're going to see that this is primarily a genealogy in chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. And it takes us from Noah's son, Shem, to Abram, who will later be named Abraham, linking us, like in Genesis chapter 5, to what has already taken place. So in Genesis 5, we see this link between Adam and Noah, and now we're going to see that link between Noah and Abram. These three pivotal figures through whom God makes and reaffirms his covenant with all of humanity. From Genesis to Revelation, we are reminded that this is a story. It's not about us, and it's not even a story about the people who at times seem to be highlighted, but a much bigger story of God's redemptive work since the time of Adam and Eve. And this story is far more gradual than I tend to think about it, having grown up hearing and reading and learning about these passages. Uh, One example of this is that you'll notice the downward progression of the life expectancy of those listed. Going back to Genesis 6, verse 3, God sees the wickedness of man increasing, and he says that the days of man would be 120 years. You'll see this progression from Adam and Methuselah, who were 930 and 969 years respectively when they died, to Noah, who was 950. But then we fast forward a little ways, and we get to Abram's father, Terah, who lived to 205. And you'll see that God is methodically playing the long game. He's creating, he's declaring, he's covenanting, and then directing all things to his eternal purpose and in fulfillment of his promises. Now, when we first read these stories, we might read quickly through Genesis chapters 1 through 12, and we don't fully comprehend the number of years and generations that have taken place between those chapters beginning and end. But at the same time, we've got to realize that this really is a long story with people's lives involved, with histories, with background, with enormous implications behind all of it. And I want us to jump in with verse 10 of chapter 11 with that context kind of rolling in the back of our minds. So let's go ahead and begin reading. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shalah. And Arpashad lived after he fathered Shalah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shalah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shalah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years 
and had other sons and daughters. When Ryu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. And Ryu lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years. So even right here, you can begin to see there's a, an enormous downturn in the number of years that people are living. So we're, we're drawing closer and closer to that 120 mark that the Lord had declared earlier in our reading in Genesis chapter 6. And after 207 years, 207 years, he passed. And in verse 22, it says, when Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. Now we're getting closer and closer to Abram at this point. This is Abram's father. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. So when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Terah's descendants... Um, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, though, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And that's an important uh, distinction. That's an important uh, additive to this genealogy. And the writer is trying to highlight the fact that there is a lot going on here than just simply moving from one generation to the next or naming one patriarch after another. He's drawing our attention to this specific piece that's going to greatly impact Abram's life later. And so we pick up in verse 29, and it says that Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, and the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son's Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Ron, they settled there, and the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. See, we're going to find a similar, more concise genealogy in First Chronicles uh, chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. But here we find a couple of details that are, I think, really worth drawing attention to. Again, Haran, the father of Lot and brother of Abram, died early. This would explain that close relationship between Abraham later and Lot. And in the culture, the oldest patriarch in the family would have taken on the responsibility of looking after the family's the widows, and in this case, the son of a younger family member, especially if that uh, husband or father died, similar to what you'd find when you read through the book of Ruth. And after the death of his son, Terah moved, taking his oldest son, Abram, and Lot with him. And he settled in a place his son, who later uh, died, was named after and they did not seem to make it all the way to Canaan at this point. Remember, they, they set out to move towards Canaan, but they didn't make it all the way there. They stopped in what is Haran. It's about 550 miles north and slightly west from where they began in Ur. And now this, too, is where Terah will die. And with this backdrop, we come to what I think is one of the most significant passages in Scripture when it comes to God's plan, his covenant, his grace, and his purpose. So read with me these next three verses, beginning uh, at the verse one of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great na nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Everything God is telling Abram at this point is counterintuitive to what he is promising him. Think about it. God is telling Abram to leave his roots. As the oldest, he would have taken up his father's legacy. You'd take the legacy of your father and you'd make it greater through the acquisition of land, through wealth, through children. But God instead here is telling Abram to leave. Abram is constantly being instructed to pull up roots and sacrifice the here and now for what is promised, but not defined. And yet the promise God is making is so much greater than the legacy Abram would have been working toward otherwise. God says, I'll bless you. I'll make you a great nation. I will make your name great. I will bless those who align with you. I will curse those who oppose you. I will bless all families of the earth through you. I don't want to speak for Abram, but as someone who wasn't a ruler or a king, the most even a wealthy person would have hoped for was land, livestock, peace, and a simple life for he and his family. Perhaps maybe enough success to have something for the following generation or two to build upon. But God is blowing all of that out of the water. The God of the universe states that he is personally going to bless Abram. Think about that for a second. Just dwell on that for a moment. Not a mayor, not a governor, not a king. Literally the creator and ruler of the universe is telling Abram that he will bless him. Now, what does that mean? Let's define blessing for a second. That Hebrew word barak here is a verb, and it means to invoke or enact divine favor. It implies a, a positive disposition towards something or someone. And this word has the nuance of bending one's knee on behalf of another. To bless someone is to act on their behalf in a manner that brings prosperity in life. And this is what God is committing to on Abram's behalf. And he even lists some specifics, right? He says, I'll make you a great nation. He even extends this further by saying in Genesis 15, 5, that his offspring will be like the stars in the heavens. Not only that, but God promises that Abram's name will be great. Not just the provision of blessing, but here he's really communicating the protection of that blessing. And this is so key in what we're going to see in just a few verses. And it's something that is easily forgotten on Abram's part. God is promising Abram the protection of and the sustaining of that blessing that he gives him. He tells him that your offspring will be given a land. And even more in Genesis 17, 7, he promises that his covenant will extend not just to the land, not just to his immediate children, but it will extend to all of Abram's offspring. And to top it all off, God implies that others will bless him as well. And those who dishonor or oppose him will experience God's curse upon them. Now, before we move on, I also want to point out that God gave a command that preceded the blessing. Leave your country, your family, and your father's house, your home. To where? Well, the destination was undetermined at the outset. Abram's trust wasn't in the outcome of his circumstances. It was to be in the God who was sovereign over them. So in verse four, we read, so Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran and Abram took Sarai, his wife and Lot, his brother's son 
and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Abram was already departed his home territory of Ur to go more than 500 miles to Haran. Not that long ago, right? So it was a new town to him, but it quickly took a place that had deep family ties for him as the burial place, most likely of his brother and his father. And now he's going to journey another 500 plus miles down to the south and west toward this land called Canaan. And I share all this because I don't want us to lose sight of the practical implications and struggle. God's calling and even his blessing here bring with them personal sacrifice, even to the one that the Lord promises to bless immensely. So often in our culture, we hear even our own hearts can deceive us into thinking that the Lord's blessing never seemed to follow a path that we would assume. We are told that blessing is supposed to look less like struggle and more like comfort. But the manner in which the Lord blesses, it doesn't follow that path, does it? It always has a greater benefit than we could have hoped for, but it never comes in the package that we would expect. And we see both of these realities in these next few verses. So pick up with me in the last half of verse 5 of chapter 12. It says, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Now look at what the Lord is doing on a personal level here. Abram and Sarai have suffered the reality of infertility now for years. And not just for a short season, but Abram is 75. We are well past the expected age that Abram and Sarai would have hoped to have started a family. And that's later reflected by their effort to fulfill this promise on their own. Most of the generations listed in Abram's lineage started having children at least in their 30s, and at the very latest, his own father was 70. But God is specific in regard to the way in which he intended to bless Abram and his wife. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see here that God is not unaware of our suffering. He's not unaware of our sacrifice or the difficulty that we face as we follow his commands. We can oftentimes feel alone. We can feel abandoned. We can feel defeated. And it is in these times that we need to be reminded both of the promises that we've been given, but also the one who gave them. The land Abram reached was already occupied. And by all accounts, they would not have been easily displaced. Think about what later generations would say when they went in to spy out the land. And Abram has already traveled hundreds of miles, having to care for and provide for his family, for livestock, and all of their possessions. So what does God do to encourage Abram in that moment when it must have felt overwhelming to say again, you've got to leave this place and continue to move on? God gives him an eight-word reminder. To your offspring, I will give this land. Wasn't a huge pep talk. It wasn't a long speech. It was just an eight word reminder of what the Lord was going to do. He reminds Abram that where you're standing is what your offspring will inherit. You've struggled with infertility. There will be an end to that. You've wandered for over a thousand miles just to reach a land that is already held. It will be your families. When I look at what the Lord was asking Abram to leave, it seems significant, especially in light of his age. 
But when we look at how the Lord intended to bless him, it was abundantly far more than he could have hoped for or imagined. So Abram continued to take one step in front of another, following the Lord's lead. From there, the word tells us that he moved to the hill country of the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev, past the land that he was promised as an inheritance for his offspring. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Goodness, as we continue through this story, it seems so grueling. It seems unending. It had to feel exhausting on so many levels. Yet in hindsight, we know the rest of the story and how the Lord provides for Abram, his family, and his offspring. But it is at this point in the journey that we see the first, and unfortunately not the last, glimpse of Abram's brokenness. Pick up with me in verse 11 of chapter 12. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. First, this looks like a really good compliment, right? And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they'll kill me because they will let you live. But say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt then, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, that Sarai, his wife, was gorgeous. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dwelt, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And those were given to Abram as a dowry from the Pharaoh. And much like that moment back in Genesis chapter 3, this is, this is a time when I want to shout out, Abram, what are you doing? Stop it. You don't have to lie or create a solution to the issue that you're facing. God's already assured you of so much more than just safety in the land that you find yourself in in this moment. But again, this is not a story about Abram. It's not a story about his worthiness. It's not about his accomplishments or his cunning ability to get around the problems facing his family. No, this is a story about God and his holiness and his faithfulness, which is on full display, you'll see, in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh figures it out and calls Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her. Go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Brothers and sisters, in this passage, you and I have an incredible warning to heed in our own lives. When we pursue our own means of fulfilling the Lord's blessing in our lives, and we try to force things that we really are communicating several things about what we truly believe in those moments when we do that. First, we're communicating that we don't trust God to fulfill his promises in our lives. Regardless of the, the multiple blessings, the multiple promises that we find for the people of God in scripture, when we try to find our own means of solving our own problems without reference to God, his word, his principles, and prayer, then what we're communicating is that, honestly, we just don't trust him. The second thing is that we communicate that we know better what the blessing should look like and the timing of its arrival. 
brothers and sisters, we're called to wait on the Lord. We're called to be still and know that he's God. We're called to trust him in everything and lean not on our own understanding. But when we move ahead of what God is doing, we are communicating that we think we know better what our blessing should look like and when we should receive it. And finally, we're also communicating that we don't trust the Lord to sustain his blessing in our lives. Perhaps there's something that's taking place good in your life. Perhaps you have children, but you want to solve all of the problems and not let them learn from the Lord the things that he is teaching them through patience, through obedience, through sometimes struggle or sacrifice. And we try to fill in those gaps for them so that it's not so difficult and it's more comfortable. And what we're communicating is that we need our children to trust in us more than they need to trust in him. But praise God. Think about the enduring patience and provision of God in these last four verses. Abram, according to Joshua 24, worshiped false gods before his encounter with Yahweh. We are told that he had acquired people, which meant in plain terms that he engaged with slave trade. He lied. He deceived. He prostituted his own wife and later would commit adultery with and then dismiss the mother of his firstborn son along with that son. This is not a story about a heroic biblical figure being blessed by God because of his good merit so that he could enjoy comfort and ease of life. No, there is there's a compassionate, patient, loving, and committed Heavenly Father who works all of these intricate circumstances to the good of those that God has committed to and to the glory of his own name, in spite of their faults and flaws. Now, there are certainly warnings to heed, but there is an even greater grace to observe, isn't there? A greater grace in the character and the person of our Heavenly Father. And the incredible provision that he has made for us this side of the cross through his son, Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. So brothers and sisters, how do we apply this incredible truth to our own lives? First of all, we see our place in God's redemptive story. In Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9, it says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Continuing in verse 14 of that same chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul writes, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He continues in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek now, there's neither slave nor free, neither is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Listen to those words, as all of that commitment, is, as that covenant, as that blessing, as that commitment from the Lord had been leveraged toward Abram in those early chapters of Genesis, here now, after the redeeming work of Christ, all of those blessings and promises apply to you if you've surrendered your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The second thing that, that we need to do, brothers and sisters, is realize that we receive these blessings of the covenant. We can't work for them. 
We can't earn them. There's nothing in us that would gain merit enough to deserve them. So as the true covenant offspring, we then get to receive the blessings of the covenant. Romans 8, chapter, uh, verses 14 through 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Think about that for a second. We don't have to be the hero. We don't have to be the one that earns God's blessing. No, we acknowledge and we realize that our place in redemptive history is one of being a part of the family of God. And the blessings that God promises are theirs there for us to receive, not have to earn. And so, brothers and sisters, the last thing these passages then call us to do is to respond to the calling that the blessing intended, not just simply for us, but for others. And this is so critical. With the blessing comes the call. With salvation comes the commission. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing, we are told in Ephesians chapter 3, so that we will be a blessing, specifically a blessing to all the families of the earth. God, in his infinite wisdom and design, saw fit to bless us in allowing us to be a part of inviting every man, woman, and child into his family. Not because we're most capable, not because they are worthy, but because our God is truly great. So brothers and sisters, as we reflect on this again, chapter of Abram's life, as we look at his journey, as we look at the struggles juxtaposed with the blessings, there are so many things that we can glean and then apply to our own lives. But more than anything else, it is an opportunity to acknowledge the goodness of our great God. It is to him that we are able to bring our requests and bring our needs daily as we have them. And so there are some prayer needs that I would just simply like to implore you to join us in praying for. They're specifically related to our department or our team leading out with regard to human resources. Could you please join us this week in praying for this team, for Blake, for Tanya, for Alexis, for Susie, for Caitlin, that God would continue to show them ways to collaborate with one another and with other teams here at Lifeline, and that God would give them just creative genius, so to speak, as they serve in their roles, being sensitive both to the needs of Lifeline staff, but also to the needs in the future that are coming. Would you pray for us for the relationships that this team garners among our staff, that they would lead well, speaking in truth and in love, that they would serve out their roles in a way that honors the Lord and maintains adherence to all the licensing and regulations that we have to be mindful of? Would you join us in praying for them as they recruit new colleagues to join our staff, that they would search out individuals that are aligned with the mission and the vision that we find in scripture that is really the mandate for Lifeline to equip the church to demonstrate the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. And finally, would you pray with us for the future 
of Lifeline, that the growth of our team would be reflected, not just simply in the numbers of those individuals here at Lifeline who are on staff, but even more so that we would grow in our likeness of our Savior and our Heavenly Father. So would you go with me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the incredible picture that we get in Genesis chapter 11 and 12 with regard to who you are. God, we see a figure in scripture of Abraham who is broken, faulty, sinful. God, worshiping false gods. God, one who is involved in slave trade, lying, deception, who prostitutes his own life. God, so many things and characteristics that we could look at in Abram's life that would discredit him as a follower of you. And yet, God, you still love him. You still blessed him. You still used him. God, not because of those flaws, but in spite of them, because of your adherence to a covenant, your commitment to your people. And so, God, we simply just praise you for that today. God, we, we praise you for including us among those people, that we as followers of Christ get to be a part of your family. And in light of that, we get to be heirs, that we get to receive incredible blessing, every spiritual blessing that is available to us because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we praise you for that today. And so, God, I, I pray for those who are listening that, God, the truths of what we've read and what we've seen would be planted deeply in their hearts so much so that it really truly is reflected in everything that they do and everything that they say, that we could be a part of that calling to be a blessing to every family on the earth, that through us they would know there's an incredibly gracious Heavenly Father who has provided for their salvation because of His own sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection from the dead. God, help us to communicate that and reflect that truth in every decision that we make and every attitude that we have. And God, finally, we ask for the blessing that you've given Lifeline to do this ministry would be reflected by the fact that we want to pursue and be a blessing to others. God, help us to do that in every part of work that we do today and in the days to come. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.